right, so hello. <laughs> um, welcome to another episode. Um, I play guitar and sometimes I come up with new songs and that was an example of one of them and I said I would put it to use at the start of this episode. So this episode is going to be part two of the last episode. Um, if you didn't listen to the last episode first, it's probably best if you go and listen to that one first. But if you did, you will already know that in that episode I explained um, how I was going to do that episode on a, on, a, on a book from the Roman times. And as I was researching that book, um, I discovered that that book is a classic example of um, these the ancient books that were lost and then rediscovered in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance times. And that book was discovered in Switzerland in a monastery there. And the monastery was named after... Um, an Irish monk. And then I remembered, oh yeah, that whole period of history. And so I decided to put aside the book I was going to do the episode on and to um, reread a book um, on that period of history that I was reminded of, which in the last episode I described as the Irish Renaissance. So um, in this episode, I'm going to pick back up uh, in a few minutes where I left off in that episode with uh, Columbanus um, and I'm going to continue the story from Columbanus because he was a part of the first, he was really the first wave of a renaissance in Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire or after the decline of the Roman Empire <laughs> uh, as I discussed in the last episode. Um so yeah, so in this episode, I'm going to take back up from roughly Columbanus and I'm going to cover 1,000 years of history, roughly, up until the time where the book that I was going to do the, the other episode on was rediscovered in Switzerland, just to kind of complete that. I'm just going to give a, a brief uh, kind of sketch of that whole period of history, the Middle Ages, essentially, in broad strokes, as they say, just so if anyone is listening to this podcast and if they're maybe new to medieval history or they've kind of, you know, forgotten it like anyone would forget if they don't kind of, you know, go back into it after they've left school or something. Um, so, yeah, I just want within my own podcast series, I'm going to be referring to periods in the Middle Ages in later episodes and stuff. So I want to just devote this episode just to giving a brief overview of that whole period. So if it's kind of new to you or if you've kind of forgotten it, uh, this will be like a refresher uh, or a brief introduction. It'll give you kind of the main points to hold on to. And then and then I'm probably going to go back to individuals that I mention in this episode. I'm probably going to go back to them and um, do an episode on some of them, <laughs> if not all of them, because I'm going to be talking about the main people and the main kind of movements of, uh, of this 1000 years of history. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's going to be at, again, like the last episode, it's going to be like a tour bus. I'm going to be, um, yeah, dropping a lot of names and I'm going to spend more time on some people and less time on others. Um, but yeah, I'm going to try and get it all in there. So um, the other day I was reading um, a book unconnected really to this research for this episode. It was a, a book about poetry by the American modernist poet called Ezra Pound. Um, 
and he was talking about the troubadours and he was and he mentioned he he made a, a, a sentence he wrote a sentence <laughs> i was going to say he made a comment about um the middle ages and about what europe is and he said he said europe is essentially a medieval basis with wash after wash of classicism and i just read that and it just stuck in my mind in relation to this episode that i was also researching because it's it's a very good summary of what this episode is going to be about what this period of history is about it's essentially when he says it's a medieval basis that's like the fall of the roman empire the germanic peoples come in they recently converted to christianity that's the medieval part and then it's wash after wash or i was using the word wave after wave wash is water and wave is water also coincidentally but waves are uh, vibrational things also anyway <laughs> um so i was using the word a uh, wave so as i said the irish renaissance was a first wave um and in this episode i'm going to be looking at the other waves um so yeah i just thought that was a worthwhile um thing to mention because it's a good intro again to this whole uh episode um and in doing my research for for this, um, yeah, I consulted about four four books mainly um, on the topic, and um, I kind of picked up on two major themes that I'm going to emphasize in in this uh, because I think it really is the story of Europe, um, and the the two themes are this that I've picked up anyway. Um, it's essentially. A battle between um, faith, as in believing in something, believing in Christianity, the new religion in Europe, um, and and reason. It's a it's a it's a t there's a tension all the way through this episode and this period of history of faith and reason, and the faith is in the form of the of the in relation to Christianity, and the reason is in relation to. The difficulty that Christians had when they encountered the Greek and Roman writers who were so-called pagans because they didn't believe in Christianity because they were around before Christianity. So it's this is this is the problem that Europe <laughs> faces as a as a young Christian uh, continent. Let's say, um, how do they? What do what does a, what do Christians do when? They read the ancient authors and they can see how excellently they were able to think with their human reason, how they could think for themselves. And yet they believed in all of these different gods. So for, for the Christians, this was the main problem with the massive reputation of the ancient Greek and Roman authors. Um, yeah, so they had to they had to deal with this. <laughs> and so this is a tension that runs all the way through the Middle Ages. Let's get a drink. It's 29 degrees here in Antwerp today. Um, yeah, beautiful weather. Anyway, so... Um, and then the other theme is... Um, people in the early Middle Ages were aware that the, the Roman civilization had collapsed. So they were aware that a fall had occurred. They were aware that a loss of civilization had occurred. And so the other theme that I'm picking up on is an inferiority complex from the early Middle Ages because, you know, they were discovering these books bit by bit and they were seeing 
the quality of thinking and uh, all of the different uh, topics that they had discussed and that, that they had information on. Um, and so in the early Middle Ages, as I'm going to try and show in this episode, it's all about trying to rediscover these excellent books and trying to engage with them as much as they can and learn as much as they can so that they can rise back up to at least the level that the ancients had. Um, because, as I said, they felt inferior to them. And I'm going to point out um, an example of this in a bit, for, just for example. <laughs> um, there's many more, but I'm just going to focus on one because I can't fit so much into just hopefully one hour. Ho um, hopefully this is going to be not so long. Anyway, so those are the two themes that are going to be woven through this uh, thousand years of, of history by me. Uh, faith versus pagan reason and can the Europeans overcome the inferiority complex after they realize there's been a fall in civilization? And uh, just to start off, um, I'm going to talk about an early Greek, a, a kind of a, a very influential early Greek writer called um, Basil of Caesarea, which is basically somewhere in Turkey. Uh, this was around the fourth century. And um, I read uh, one of his lectures a few weeks ago, kind of in relation to this, and the lecture was called something like um, an address to young boys for their education on the pagan writers. And the key kind of metaphor that I took away from his lecture was um, the metaphor, he goes, the metaphor of Sorry, he says, the way that Christians are to regard the pagan writers is similar to the way a bee regards the flower. And what he means by this is the bee doesn't go and take the whole flower. It just takes what it, what it needs, what's essential for it. So likewise, he's saying Christians, when they're engaging with these pagan authors, they don't need to believe everything in them. What they only need to take from it is the good that they can find in these um, books. For example, if a Christian is going to go and read Homer uh, and his Iliad or Odyssey, his two excellent, amazing books, um, or if he's going to go read um, a book by Virgil, which is uh, called the Aeneid, which I described in the last episode, which is kind of like the main um it's a story that has all the myths of uh, the Romans in it. And if a Christian is going to go read some books like this, for example, um, what, a, what a Christian should do is just look for what is good in these. For example, is there examples of virtue in these stories? And there is. And um, coincidentally, if you're interested in this, <laughs> and if you haven't heard it already, I did an episode on uh, Philip Sidney's defense of poetry, where he talked a lot about the virtue that was to be found in uh, Virgil's Aenad. Um, you could go back to that if, you're, if you want to hear more on that. Um, so that was just a, an interesting metaphor um, that I took from his lecture. And it kind of illustrates quite well um, how, he, um, how he didn't fear um, these Greeks and Romans with their multiple gods, he just said, okay, look, yeah, we'll, we'll just say they're wrong about those gods because we know we're right and we, we only have one God. So let's just look at whatever is good in them and, and leave it at that. But other Christians were so um, 
worried that these multiple gods in the pagan writers would influence Christians, um, that they, like said, don't read them at all. So this is a tension that goes all the way through the Middle Ages. How are Christians supposed to regard the excellent writing of the pagans if the pagans had multiple, multiple gods, which goes completely against Christian beliefs? So, um, so, yeah, so that, that kind of establishes the, the attention, I think, with that example from Basil. So now I can um, kind of roughly take back up where I left off in the last episode. But before I get to Columbanus, I would just like to mention that, um, as I said, so the Roman Empire had many reasons for collapsing. And in the end, it was overrun by um, the Germanic peoples. And I just want to mention that in the east, it was overrun by three tribes uh, called the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. And it's interesting to learn that um, those three tribes were actually already converted to Christianity before they came in. Um, because a missionary called Ulfilas, Ulfilias, um, over near the Balkans, had gone out into uh, this Germanic territory and converted them. And it's, it's said that the, the, the Germanic peoples, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths and the Vandals, that they kind of willingly converted to, um, to this religion because... In actual fact, they wanted what the Romans had. They wanted the material benefits of the Roman society, as I kind of mentioned in the last episode. So they saw converting as like, you know, the entry ticket into this better life. So apparently this is one of the main reasons why they converted so quickly. Um, because as I said in the last episode, one of the famous goth leaders is can be quoted as saying, and it's a, it's a good quote to remember to illustrate this uh, dynamic. Um, he said... An able Goth wants to be a Roman, but only a poor Roman would want to be a Goth. So there you are. So they wanted to be the Romans. So they said, okay, let's let's just, uh, whether they believed it or not, the whole Christian thing, <laughs> they said, look, just believe this. Or maybe they did believe it sincerely. I don't know. But they saw that as the ticket into the material benefits of the Roman world. So anyway, so so there you are. You have Italy now and Spain and North Africa all in control of of um, Christianized Germanic peoples. But the thing is, in the East, this guy Ulfalas, um, perhaps I said his name wrong there, <laughs> but um, he had converted them to a different type of Christianity. It wasn't Catholicism. And the difference is Catholicism believes in a holy trinity, that Jesus Christ was the, both, he was the son the Father and the Holy Spirit all in one. But the Aryans didn't believe that. They had a different view. So, um, so yeah, so this, this is another tension that has to be resolved within Europe. Um, and I suppose I'll just say it now that um, it was the 4th century, uh, if you don't know already, when um, Christianity became the main religion of the Roman Empire. Um, up until then, uh, Christianity had been Christians were within the Roman Empire were a minority and at the, in early days obviously but then it grew and grew and grew and um, and then the Christians were really persecuted uh, in particular there was a there was an emperor called Diocletian and he had a very he had a very oppressive reign against the Christians I believe and uh, but then shortly after he um, after him there was Constantine Constantine the Great and he 
he could see that this religion was spreading like wildfire. So he said, okay, we're going to make this the main religion because we can't stop it. So we better control it. So, <laughs> so he converted and it was, it was under his rule as emperor after converting to Christianity, he established a, a council called the council of Nicaea. And that was a council specifically to try and deal with this Aryan heresy. And so within this council, this her this, this form of Christianity was examined and it was, it was denounced as heresy. And so, yeah, over the next uh, period of history, Christians tried to basically, um, you know, wipe out this uh, Aryan version of Christianity. Okay. So, um, I guess I, something else is just coming to mind there as well. <laughs> in the early days of Christianity, it's just a, an etymology here that has come to mind. In the early days of Christianity, um, as I said, Christians were kind of persecuted. They had to uh, kind of, you know, worship and come together in, in secrecy um, often. And it's interesting that the, when they would come together in the Latin, in the Latin language that they all probably would have spoken, they referred to it as con, meaning with, and spiratio, meaning spirit. So they would come together with the spirit of Jesus. So they would come together with the spirit and discuss it and, you know, uh, talk amongst themselves and read the Bible and whatnot. And it's just interesting that this is where the word conspiracy <laughs> comes from. Um, it's just funny how how that word has just been completely inverted to mean nothing um but in actual fact in the original it's you know it's a real thing that was happening they were coming together um in in you know in the true spirit of christianity um and it's just it's just funny how words get completely warped and uh the meaning of them changes because now if you say something is a conspiracy you're basically saying it's nothing and it doesn't exist um and yeah you can think about that. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so that's what happens in the Eastern Germanic peoples when they come into the empire. Now, if we go back up to where France is, the, another group of Germans um, invaded from that side, and they were referred to by the Romans as the Franks, but the Franks were actually just the name of one of the tribes, but the Romans just called them all, oh, they're all just the Franks. But it was really like Salians, Burgundians, and Alemanni. There's lots of different tribes. My God, I just drank a coffee and my mouth so dry. <laughs> mm. Okay, so you have all of these different tribes, these Frankish tribes, now in control of the territory that we know as France. And so there was all these different tribes, but it didn't take very long. As I said, you can keep in mind in the last episode, you can keep in mind 476 is the date, the official date that the last emperor in Rome was deposed. So... It wasn't long after 476 when um, the f a king from one of these tribes actually kind of united all the tribes and made it into one empire. And that was called the Merovingian Empire. And his name was Clovis, Clovis I. And he's said to be the first uh, king of the Franks now. And his dynasty is, yeah, as I said, the Merovingians. And there's just some, uh, if you have never heard of the word Merovingians. Um, if you've ever seen the film, one of the Matrix films, I think it's maybe in two or three of them, there's a character called the Merovingian um, that's hearkening back to this period that I'm talking about. And also there is a, there is a conspiracy 
theory uh, um, about the Merovingians. And if anyone has ever read Dan Brown, the, the Da Vinci Code, or seen the film, you might remember that in it, Dan Brown made use of a, of a theory that was proposed by another guy, I think in the 80s, that, um, that Mary Magdalene, as mentioned in the Bible, had had a child with Jesus. And after Jesus's ex, uh, crucifixion, she sailed with some people over to the south of France. And uh, eventually she kind of married or was with um, someone from the Merovingian dynasty. And so there is this theory attached to the Merovingians. You can look into yourself if you want to know more. <laughs> um, that the Merovingians are the continuation of Jesus Christ's bloodline. Okay, so that's just something attached to the Merovingians. Um, but to continue with the story, um, those Germanic peoples who conquered the area of, Fra of France, unlike the ones in the east, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals, these Frankish people were not um, Christian. They were still Germanic. They, they uh, believed in Odin and, and all the Scandinavian gods. My uh, window is open. One second. And actually, if you're wondering why is the window open, okay, yes, it's hot at the moment, so I would have to have it open. But I actually have to have these windows open all the time. And if you're so, and I record in my, my apartment. So if you're listening to some episode by me and there's noise from, you know, an open window, if you listen to my short story that I read out two episodes ago, the part where I explain why the window is open is quite true. It's an auto-fictive auto story, meaning it's it's kind of fact mixed with a bit of fiction, but the part about the window is all true. So if you're wondering why the window is open and there's some noise from the street coming in, it's the reason is in that episode. <laughs> um, anyway, so back to um, the, the Germanic people. Um, so the story goes, after Clovis had united all of the Franks, so-called Franks, um, and Frank is where we get the word France from, anyway, um, he married a woman from another tribe of Germanic people called the Burgundians, and she was already Christian, and she was trying to get him to convert to be a Christian. And uh, Clovis was having a battle with the Alemanni, another Frankish tribe, and he was kind of losing. It wasn't looking good. And his wife's, his wife's um, efforts to, uh, to convert him came up into his mind. And he said he appealed to the God of Christianity saying, please, um, you know, if you can help me win this battle, I will convert to Christianity. And so he did actually end up winning the battle. And so true to his word, he converted. Um, so yeah, there's there's doubts as to whether he converted sincerely or whether it was just for political gain. But uh, either way, he converted himself to Christianity. And now I'm going to be able to take back up where Columbanus comes into the picture. Um, because um, not all of the nobles, not all of the Franks wanted to convert um because because of a particular aspect of Christianity known as the sacrament of penance. And the sacrament of penance is within the Christian religion. Before you died, at some point before you died, um, you would have to ask um, a priest or a bishop or a monk, someone from the church, you would have to 
start the act of penance. And in Roman times, it was it was normally a person would only do this act when they were on their deathbed um, or when they were, yeah, basically when they were told they were sick and they weren't going to make it. Because once you take this vow, your life is completely changed. You're asking for forgiveness publicly and you have to, um, you essentially have to start living like a monk. And if you held a position in society, you can't do that anymore. You have to take a vow of chastity. So this act of penance within the Christian religion was completely life-changing. And so people would try and put it off until the end of their life. But obviously, if you're warring and fighting with people all the time, it can happen anytime. So if someone did it at a younger stage in their life, that was it for the rest of their life. So this was pretty harsh um, form of uh, penance. Um, and it was a public shaming kind of a thing. And here's where Columbanus comes in. When Columbanus comes into the, into the Merovingian Europe, he is so good at converting these people to Christianity. Apparently, he was very char charismatic himself, and he was very—he was so learned in the in the in the classical tradition. So he was very impressive. Um, and yeah, why he was so good at converting people was because he brought an Irish form of penance into Europe, which appealed to the Frankish people because. It wasn't as severe. You could you could give your confession in the old way. You could only give it once, and then you had to you had to take this vow of uh, vow of penance. Uh, but with the Irish way, you could you could give your confession every day, and and you didn't have to give up your public office position. You didn't have to give. You didn't have to take a vow of chastity. So it was much more appealing to the Franks. They could have, and the reason you would do this penance is to get into heaven. If you don't do this, you might not get into heaven. So if they were going to be Christians, they wanted to get into heaven. Um, and, and another factor that was uh, liked by the Franks was that the type of uh, mon monasteries that were in uh, Ireland, Ireland didn't really have cities, so it was all rural. Um, <laughs> um, and in the on on the continent the monasteries that um columbanus was setting up were far away from the from the urban centers uh any kind of area where the romans might have built a kind of a city or something uh, and so the franks once again kind of liked that so these are just some of the reasons why columbanus was uh very influential influential um in yeah in converting the the, the franks to christianity um there's just um, in in researching Columbanus recently again, it's interesting that um, Columbanus is said to be the first European because he was apparently since the fall of the Roman Empire he was apparently the first person to suggest that all of Europe should uh, unite under the banner of Christianity. He said all of Europe can. He says, like, you know, he knows there's different territories with different customs and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Leave it like that. But at least we should cooperate under uh, the banner of Christianity. And actually, this is a theme mm, that's going to come up again later on. I'll, I'll get to it. But um, what I'm saying here is it's very in interesting that the founding fathers, there's apparently four figures of the European Union in the mid uh, 20th century, um, Two of them, one was called Monet, uh, M-O-N-N-E-T, and the other guy was called Schumann. And they, they, were all, they were Catholics, and they held a secret meeting um, 
with this was after the after World War II, they held a secret meeting with with all of the heads of both the Allied side in the World War II and the Axis side in the World War II. Like Winston Churchill was there, and yeah, just the leaders from both sides of the war. They they were invited to this, uh, and actually they were invited to where Columbanus first set up his uh, his first monastery in Europe in a place called Luxoy. Uh, L-U-X-E-U-I-L, I think it's spelled. Um, and they had this secret meeting with all of the all of the European leaders to propose um, a what is it called? A, a coal and steel European community, so that Europe would cooperate. It was essentially to try and unite Europe after the Second World War, so that Europe would cooperate as opposed to um, as opposed to have another war sometime. And so it's interesting that those the, the people who came up with this idea, they had that meeting in the place where Columbanus set up his first um, monastery. And it's Columbanus who was said to be the first European. So, yeah, it's just interesting that they were um, appealing to Columbanus's appeal for uh, a united Europe. So, yeah, I just thought that was quite, quite interesting. Um, before I go past Columbanus, now, I should also mention that it was also interesting to learn that um, down in Italy, once again, after the Visigothic people and the Ostrogoths, uh, the Ostrogoths took over uh, Italy and the Visigoths took over Spain, um, there was actually an attempt by the Eastern Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, which is called the Byzantine Empire, because that actually kept going. The empire fell in the West, but in the East, it actually kept going until about the 15th century when um, the Turkish Ottoman Empire uh, basically took it over. One sec, just get another drink. Um, So it was the year 535 when the emperor in the Eastern uh, Roman Empire... His name was Justinian. He tried to reconquer the lost territory in the West. And he sent an apparently brilliant general called Belisarius. Belisarius. Um, (laughs) Apparently, he was very jealous of of this general's abilities. So he didn't give him enough soldiers, as one might expect a person would need to reconquer. But in actual fact, Belisarius was so good that he actually did. Uh, he, he first of all conquered North Africa, and then he did eventually conquer uh, all of Italy. But the war is is referred to as um, a Pyrrhic victory, and uh, Pyrrhic is a Pyrrhic victory is um, coming from a, a Greek um, kind of leader uh, um, who was fighting against Roman expansion in Greece when the Roman Empire was trying to go into Greece and this phrase a Pyrrhic victory means okay you won the battle like the the Byzantines won the battle against the the Visigoths but at such a cost to themselves that it was almost not worth it um it's just a phrase you might hear it a Pyrrhic victory and actually in in Ulysses James Joyce's Ulysses in the second chapter there's a mention of this um I won't go into it too far but the phrase comes up uh, a student says, oh, yes, Pyrrhus, um, another victory like that and we are done for. It's just a summary. Anyway, <laughs> that's a that's a topic for another day, Ulysses. But anyway, um, 
so so yeah so italy was actually really devastated after this after these gothic wars between the byzantines and the goths um and it was only a few years after uh, justinian himself died which was in 565 that the visigoths actually did reconquer um actually sorry it wasn't the visigoths it was another group of germanic peoples called the lombards they came down into from central europe and they conquered northern italy um and but only a few places like rome and only a few small areas remained in byzantine control um and this is going to come up in this story again in a while so uh, you can just keep it in mind. Another factor that happened around this time is something that's known as the Justinian Plague. It was the first wave of the Black Death um, to enter Europe. And this came in around 550. Uh, so during these Gothic Wars. So there was these wars going on and then there was a plague also going on. So Italy was really destroyed thoroughly after after these wars and when the plague came especially. And this plague actually lasted 200 years roughly. Uh, and so that's an interest, that's a, um, that's a date to remember. So it ended around 750. Um, so these are things that I'm going to get back to again. The Lombards now control Italy. The Black Plague, the Black Death is going through Europe until 750. Um, so now, uh, so I've... Spoke about Columbanus again, the first European, the first wave of a Renaissance. Um, and now we're going to go over to the Visigothic uh, kingdom in Spain. And I'm mentioning one particular guy here because in what I'm going to focus on in this episode is how the books from it, the classic world survived. Um, and so there was a guy in uh, Seville uh, called Isidore of, of Seville. And he... He wrote a he wrote a compendium, which is a, like a collection of books. He essentially wanted to write within one collection of books all information that that is worthwhile knowing. It was a massive endeavor. It's like what we would call now an encyclopedia, but uh, he called it the etymologia. Uh, an etymology that's coming from the word etymology. Uh, it's the Latin version of etymology, and etymology means the origin of words. Um, and so yeah, this was. This was yeah, a massive undertaking. Um, and this guy, Isidore of Seville, has in recent years by one of the popes, this guy, Isidore of Seville, was uh, he is called the, the patron saint of the Internet, in actual fact. Now, um, it, I don't think he actually has been canonized. I think that's the word for when someone becomes a saint. I don't think he has met the actual criteria for because there is criteria for how a person becomes a saint but uh he was dubbed this uh he was uh claimed as being the um as being the patron saint of the internet because maybe that's the catholic church's way of trying to adapt to changing times and how, what does the catholic church do uh with you know all the dangers that are involved in the internet um so anyway um back to isidore he wrote this um massive encyclopedia essentially um and he gave in it summaries of the ancient, some of the ancient authors. Um, but he also wrote about the trivium and the quadri quadrivium. Uh, he wrote about just everything. He wrote about cities. He wrote about geography, buildings, roads, metals, rocks, agricultural, agriculture, war, ships, food, every, everything that a person sh like, you know, would need to know. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and this book is very famous in the Middle Ages. Um, writers that I'm going to mention later on, um, they, they refer to this book as being a great source of, uh, of preserving um, the classical authors. But in actual fact, sometimes his summaries on the classical authors were read more than the actual origins, original text, that in actual fact, some of the, some of the authors that he was summarizing were actually, the original texts were actually lost because people focus so much on, on his summaries. <laughs> but anyway, so Isidore of Seville is, um, is another uh, really worthwhile guy to mention. Um, so now we're going to move ba back up to Italy. Um, and in Italy, or sorry, in England, I mean, <laughs> um, in England, another major figure who was... Um, a great scholar. He was a monk uh, in northern England. He was called Beda, Beda the Venerable. And Beda the Venerable, I believe, means he, he was like, he was very close to becoming a saint um, in the hierarchy of, uh, of the ladder of how you become a saint. Um, and this guy, Beda, apart from being just a really uh, renowned scholar, uh, he, he, and because of his impressive understanding and uh, you know appreciation and searching out all the ancient texts, he 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 wrote a famous um, history of the English people called the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, and this book also um, popularized the dating system that we all know now as the AD and BC, uh, dating system. He didn't invent it himself, but his book on the history of the English people was so popular. It got spread around Europe. Um, he, but he used this dating system in that popular book. And so he was like an influencer we might call today. So, um, it was actually a um, a Syrian monk in the late fifth century called Dionysius Exigus E X I G U U S. He's the guy who came up with this anno domino uh, dating system that we use here in the Western world. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was interesting to mention about um, about Beta. I was, I was thinking as well. Like I said, this is like a tour bus through uh, history, but. Also, it could be kind of like, that's kind of like a, a pre-internet metaphor. If it's going to be, um, <laughs> if it's going to be a metaphor of what I'm doing in this episode for um, like medieval times, I could say we're going to go on a pilgrimage around the most important sacred sites, uh, the sacred people, the, the, we're going to look at the, the burial places of these uh, famous people that did so much. But in a mod, as a modern metaphor, I could say, okay, in this episode, I'm going to take you to your computer and I'm going to open up a tab for all of the most important figures of this thousand years of medieval history. And I'm going to open up these tabs for you and then you'll have a good uh, basis of what we're dealing with when we think about medieval history. <laughs> Let's get a drink. So um, it's kind of the more boring metaphor, actually, the tabs, but in a way... It's the most informative, isn't it? Um, anyway, just if you go around and see a grave, you don't get much information. But if you're sitting in front of a computer, you get the Wikipedia page or something. Anyway, um, just a little commentary on uh, metaphors. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the most important thing to men mention about Beta. 
it's just, I think it's interesting. Like, you know, we have these things and we, we just say them all the time, like AD or BC, and it's interesting to discover where they actually come from. So now, you know, it, it came from a Syrian monk called Dionysius Exegus, um, and then it was popularized by a really great scholar in northern England. In Beta lived from 673 till 735. Uh, and then the next character, next person that I'm going to talk about is also from uh, northern England. He's, he's called Alcuin of York. And Alcuin of York is really important because... He was kind of like Beda. He was the most renowned scholar of his time in all of Europe. Um, and it, it's said that York had the best library in that time period. And Alcuin was like a master of of that library. He had uh, devoured all of the all of those books. So he's just he was a real living uh, preserver of the classical learning that I'm talking about in this episode. And so Alcuin never met Beta because Alcuin was born the year Beta died, which was 735. And Alcuin lived until 804. Um, so yeah, just to kind of, um, just to remind the listener uh, about these these themes that I, um, that I mentioned at the start, the uh, fate versus uh, reason and the inferiority complex. So, um, yeah, so I'm just saying this library of York is very important because it had the most amount of books um, in the world, essentially, at that time. Uh, and I'm going to get back to this theme very soon now of uh, the inferiority complex. Um, so Alcuin, as I said, was a great scholar. And around this time, in uh, the Merovingian dynasty, back on mainland of France, um, there was a change in power from the Merovingian dynasty to a Carolingian dynasty. And this happened because there was a aristocratic family within the Merovingian um, uh, territory who actually took over the, the Merovingian dynasty. Uh, power structure and th they changed it to the Carolingian. Um, it was like a different bloodline, you know? Um, so it was now this t Merovingian territory was now the Carolingian territory. And then a very famous person, if you want to look at medieval history, you have to know about Charlemagne. So Charlemagne was a descendant of one of the people who took over the, the, the Merovingian dynasty. And Charlemagne was born 747. Yeah, 747. And he basically expanded the territory of this new Carolingian Renaissance. He subdued the Saxons eventually, which is like northern Germany, all the way up until Denmark. Um, and so he broadened this empire. But he also had a real appreciation for the classics. And he, he, um, he heard about this guy, Alcuin, and he invited Alcuin from England to come to uh, Charlemagne's court, his palace, which he set up in a place called Aachen in uh, Germany, not so far from the border of, um, of uh, Belgium. And the reason he chose this 
uh, Aachen place for where to build his palace was because there was naturally occurring hot springs from the ground. And so he liked to swim in those. And actually, a few, like two months ago, I actually went to Aachen for the first time and I went, there's a, there's a swimming pool. It's like an outdoor and indoor swimming pool with these with this hot water from the thermal baths. So if you ever want to go <laughs> to Aachen to see Charlemagne's famous cathedral, um, and Charlemagne's cathedral that he built in Aachen is very unique because it's it's um, it's built in an oct- octagonal um, shape, and it's actually designed uh, based on the Hagia Sophia in uh, what's now Istanbul. And actually that was built by Justinian, the guy who tried to reconquer, um, who tried to reconquer Western Europe. Um, so yeah, if you ever want to go to Aachen to see Charlemagne's famous cathedral, uh, it's totally worth it. It's just so beautiful inside. It, it was literally breathtaking for me because there's all this kind of gold all over the ceiling. Uh, anyway, but... um. So I'll get back onto Charlemagne. So Charlemagne expanded his uh, territory a lot. And as you may remember, I was saying that the the Lombards had reconquered Italy after uh, the Byzantines had reconquered Italy. Uh, after Justinian died, this new group of Germans came over and, and, and conquered uh, what the Byzantines had taken back. So... And as I said, the area of Rome, for example, was still in Byzantine um, control. So when the Rome, when the emperor in Rome was uh, hearing about Charlemagne, this new king of all of France and Germany and down towards uh, Spain, um, that he, that the Pope heard that this guy was mighty and he was, you know, very capable. He asked Charlemagne for his help. He said, would you please come and deal with these Lombards who have taken back over this territory for the last few hundred years? And so Charlemagne did that. He he helped the Pope out because Charlemagne was a Christian. And uh, as, as a kind of a reward, the, the Pope um, crowned Charlemagne the first emperor of Europe since the fall of the Roman Empire. And so this is why Charlemagne is so... Um, famous because he was the first holy roman empire emperor of europe since the fall of the roman empire um and that was in the year 800 and it was on christmas day um so as i was saying charlemagne invited alcuin and alcuin set up schools within the within the carolingian uh, empire um and because of alcuin because of his influence, there is there was what is now referred to as the Carolingian Renaissance. So this is another re- Renaissance um, in the early Middle Ages, and I'm just going to mention um, a few aspects of this because, as I was saying at the start, literally every person and period that I'm mentioning in this episode, you could do a whole nearly series on it. But yeah, I'm just trying to give a brief overview. Um, something that um, Alcuin did was he developed a type of writing, a type of handwriting. He standardized a type of handwriting that was used to copy the first Latin translation of the Bible so that it could be 
read by everyone in the new massive territory of the Carolingian Renaissance. Um, and they would all, you have to use this same script so that someone down in the south of France could communicate very easily with the someone up in, up in the north of Germany, for example. Um, if there was this standardization of handwriting, everyone would be able to read their own handwriting. Things like this were new. Um, so this, so Charlemagne kind of centralized a, um, a, a administration by doing things like this. Um, what else should I mention about him? Yeah, so he, so he, ju he just set up lots of schools, so education was improving. So people were getting more access to education. And just to get back to the inferiority uh, theme, the, the biography, the first biography that was written on Charlemagne was written by a monk who, lit, who worked in the court of Charlemagne, so he knew Charlemagne. And when he wrote his biography, it was actually originally so that one of Charlemagne's grandchildren would have would know what his grandfather was like because he never met met him. So that's the, this the guy who wrote this book was called Einhard. Um, and when I read that book, and um, it's interesting that the way he wrote about the life of Charlemagne, he he used exact phrases. Um, to describe Charlemagne's life and character, he took exact phrases from how a Roman writer called Suetonius used to write about um, the Caesar of his day. So it's like this guy, Einhard, didn't have the confidence, he didn't have the trust in himself to be able to speak eloquently or to speak properly um, uh, or in, with the highest praise of this very important figure of Charlemagne so that he had to just exactly copy how another person how a roman did it so i'm just picking out this as a perfect example of the kind of inferiority complex that the early middle age people had um and i'm going to develop this but uh so yeah you can just keep that in mind um einhard was afraid to write uh from his own kind of perspective he had to appeal to the ancients in in style So, um, so Charlemagne and his Renaissance did a lot um, because of Alcuin. Um, but unfortunately, after Charlemagne himself passed away, he divided up his kingdom to his three grandchildren. And unfortunately, things kind of fell apart again. Um, there was the Western Franks and the Eastern Franks. And then there was another... Um, Frankish Empire in the middle and that one in the middle actually fell apart and it was taken over by the other two um, and now we are kind of approaching the age of feudalism where um, the, the next so things as I'm saying things are kind of breaking up again Charlemagne's period was good but now things are kind of breaking up again um, but in the eastern section of um and actually this is where the real borders of france and germany were created it was when the middle kingdom fell apart and the western and the eastern claimed um half and half of the middle kingdom um but in the eastern frankish part there was three successive kings they were all called otto otto the first second and, and third and they um basically had their own kind of a renaissance as well because they came into contact with um the byzantines again and so they got more more greek 
ancient Greek learning um, and they had their own renaissance and it was patronized by these three kings. So they valued it quite a lot as well in the kind of tradition of Charlemagne. Um, Another factor to keep in mind as well around this period. So now we're kind of around the 900s. We're like late 900, uh, late 10th century. Um, the There was a tribe of um, Hungarians, the Mayagars. I'm not sure how to pronounce the Hungarian <laughs> version of that word. But um, they were essentially still kind of pagans. And they were all the time still attacking Europe. And it was during the Ottonian Renaissance, these three successive kings, that finally this threat that was ongoing, uh, even during the time of Charlemagne, these Hungarians coming in and um, attacking the place, it was finally with the Ottos that that was finally put to a stop. So that kind of provided, eventually, some more stability for for Europe. Um, and so now we're kind of approaching the, the the 11th century, which is like which is like 1,000 and something. And this period, because of that kind of stability, um, and things were just generally kind of gradually improving in Europe. Um, around this time, cities were starting to um, become bigger. More and more people were going to cities. Um, by the end of the near the end of the 11th century in 1088 for example there was an a very important roman text discovered and it's it's like these books when they were rediscovered it's like they were it's like they were seeds and when they were like found and when they were you know read and thought about and then spread out it's like they completely grew and and developed new things that was completely lacking because in the year 1088 um there was the first university in Europe was set up and it was set up in Bologna um and it was based on the fact that they had recently discovered a book which is called the digest which is kind of like a compendium of ancient roman law so now there was like an injection of new thinking about how to govern a society. And so all of these kind of things helped Europe to develop the cities and developed um, society, essentially. Um, the next the next um, university, I think, then was in Paris. Uh, I think that specialized in theology. Um, and there was another university, I think it's in Salerno, um, in Italy, again. And that, that uh, specialized in medicine, I think. So anyway, so this age um, from like the 10th century or the 11th century onwards is kind of the shift from the monastic period of early Middle Ages to a scholastic uh, period. And I actually did a podcast more or less basically all about that difference. It's in the episode called In the Vineyard of the Text. So if you want to know more about that, I spoke about that already in that episode. But um. In this period as well, it's also the shift from cathedrals in the Romanesque style, which is like rounded arches, um, to the Gothic cathedrals, which were much bigger. And the reason that these Gothic cathedrals were able to be built much bigger is because there was, um, by the end of the 11th century, you have the first Crusades. And when the Crusaders went over to Jerusalem to try and conquer the Holy Land, they came in contact with Arabic scholars. And the Arabic scholars that they met had, they were reading 
um, Aristotle and other Greek scientists that had been lost in Europe. Um, up until the time of the Crusades, there was basically only two books of Aristotle in Europe and then maybe some kind of summaries like in um, Isidore of Seville's uh, book. But when the um, Crusaders, they obviously brought scholars with them, uh, went to the Holy Land, they discovered that the, the Arabic scholars had had these authors that were missing in um, Europe. And so around this time as well, the uh, we're into kind of the 12th century now, like 1,100 and something. Um, Aristotle, most of his works were brought back into Europe. And Aristotle was a really uh, excellent logician, uh, which is all about uh, precise arguments. Um, and so this, this um, reintroduction of Aristotle into Europe really was like a, a jolt, like an electrifying jolt of reason and logic was reintroduced into um, into Europe. And so you had people like Peter Abelard, which is another, he was from, he was alive 1079 to 1142, which is in the middle of the 12th century. People like him were reading uh, Aristotle. And so they were coming up with new ways of interpreting the Bible and because of their improvement in their own logic. So they were able to come up with new arguments for things that were in the Bible. And this kind of was controversial in the church. And so there was actually a point where Aristotle was um, banned. Uh, certain books of Aristotle were banned in the in the university in Paris, for example. But um, um, yeah, I'll just get on to uh, the next major figure. Um, in this battle for, as I said at the start, just believing what the Bible says and then coming up with your own thoughts on the Bible, perhaps, or new arguments for how to interpret things in the Bible, the guy who really synthesized and who really harmonized the ancient writers, especially like Aristotle, with the Christian faith was a guy called Thomas Aquinas. He was from Italy. He was born 1265 uh, and he died in 1321. But he became a, a head in uh, the university in Paris. And it was him who, yeah, as I said, harmonized the pagan writers with the Christian faith finally. So that tension that I was referring to um, was finally resolved um, only in the 13th century by this guy, Thomas Aquinas, in a massive book he wrote called the Summa Theologica. Um, once again, if you're ever going to look into medieval history, once again, like I'm the other people I'm mentioning, this guy was massively important. Um, I should also say, before I go on too much, I don't want to forget about... Um, another influence of uh, coming into contact with um, the Arabic world, um, which was also in Spain, by the way, it was conquered um, by the by the Muslims in the eighth century. So Charlemagne actually had to stop the Muslims from entering into France. There was a famous battle there, um, and actually that famous battle of Charlemagne. Um, I think maybe it was an ancestor of Charlemagne. He uh, had the first battle to try and stop the, the, the 
Arabic people in Spain from conquering all of Europe. So, you know, in a way, that was a very decisive battle because if he hadn't have stopped the Muslims from entering into France, what might have happened, Europe would have been very different. But anyway, so we can only deal with how it went. So um, this episode that I'm referring to here, in the 12th century, once again, it was... Um, it, it there was a story written about it, a famous poem called "The Song of Roland," um, and this kind of brings me on to another point of the twelfth century. Um, it was it was the twelfth century where, for the first time, people when they were writing, they weren't just writing in Latin because up until then, if you were able to write, it was it was Latin. Even if you were, you know, even if you were speaking some kind of language like French on your daily basis, but then when you're writing, the the main language was Latin. But it was up until the 12th century where, for the first time, people started saying mm, maybe their own vernacular language, like whatever language they spoke, whether it was in Italy or France or Spain, they should start writing in their own language. Um, and this is kind of uh, an, another example of the confidence kind of coming back to uh, Europe. Um, because they had been rediscovering all of these books over the centuries and um, they were feeling kind of like they knew enough of what the ancients were all about and so they had enough familiarity with them and so they were kind of getting more and more confident in, in Europe um, so that, for example, they would start writing their own poems. Um, for example, they would start writing this story because there really wasn't poems and, and fiction written up until the 12th century. But then you have like a famous poem about the Song of Roland, for example, and that's celebrating a vernacular hero. Um, and it was written in a vernacular language. So um, I should also just say that this period as well, from kind of like the end of the 10th century around the 12th century, it's the age of chivalry. Uh, and it's the age of courtly love and it's the age of the troubadours. Uh, these three words I just said are all, you know, worthy of many podcasts. <laughs> um, but I can just briefly say that like chivalry was, okay, Europe was, you know, still kind of warring, still people looking to expand their own little territories within within um, maybe the government of, of, of higher kings. But this new chivalric code was, I think it seems to be like an awareness of um, not really wanting to, to be so murderous to your enemies because your enemies, they're actually Christians, they're like you. So in battles, a new kind of thing was um, occurred where if you, if you were about to kill your enemy and your enemy knew it, you could say, okay, do you submit uh, as opposed to just being killed. And they had the choice to submit or be killed. And if they were submitted, then they were held for ransom. And then they could continue with their lives if one of their friends ransom paid the ransom to get them back. So this code of chivalry, I think, was really a Christian um, element of um, of the... Yeah, it was like a merciful um, military... Um, um, attitude to have towards your fellow Christians, even though you're you're warring with them. <laughs> uh, and anyway, so courtly love and the troubadours. It's interesting that um, the the lute 
this guitar type thing that came into Europe from um, the Moorish Spain, from the Muslims in Spain. So it was actually a, an Arabic instrument first, and that came into southern France, and it was adapted by the Europeans down there in um, Occitan, um, the province of Occitan. Um, and so, yeah, so the Europeans took to this new instrument, and as I'm saying, there was a there was a revival of poetry and a kind of a self-confidence coming back into Europe. And this is what the troubadours were. A whole other podcast is worth doing on them. Um, yeah, and you just have other books being written then, like The Romance of the Rose, which is all about the art of love. Um, and I, I think these books, um, the, the troubadours... Their subjects were often, yeah, how to pay courtly love to a woman that you loved. Um, so during this period, women for the first time were allowed to choose themselves if they wanted to marry a person or not. So in this area, in this area, in this period, there was a greater, um, greater kind of respect given to women. They were allowed to have their own choice about who they could marry, for example. So this was a, a real breakthrough for, for Europe. And the troubadours um, would, have been, uh, would have been supported financially by, the, um, by, let's say, the queen of an area. They would have been patrons of these troubadours. Um, and likewise, the writers who wrote uh, these romances. And just coincidentally, if you don't know... Um, the the languages of French, it, Italy, and Spain are referred to as the Romance languages, and this is because the Roman Empire spoke Latin, and you know it conquered what we call France and Spain and Italy. And then, when you had the Germanic tribes who settled in these areas, um, this Latin was mixed eventually with those Germanic peoples that came in, and so. This is how the Italian language was formed and how the French language was formed and how the Spanish language was formed. But they all have a Latin base. So they're called the, that's why they're called the Romance languages. Just a little side note there. Um, so, so, yeah, there's just really so much to say. So basically, around this period, you have, um, you have an increased... Um, you have increased um, your ability for thinking logically you have increased understanding of um of medicine because actually the um the arabic writers they had books about like childbirth for example whereas i was listening to a podcast the other day with uh it's called the in our time bbc podcast with melvin bragg and i was listening to a podcast on the 12th century renaissance and uh melvin bragg the host was talking about how the um, the the Arabic world had a, had a medical book based on obs actual observation on uh, what's happening when a child is being born. So it's very medical, analytical. And whereas in Europe at that time, the and if there was anything written about what's going on there, it was much more theoretical. For example, if a person was about to give birth, some priest might come along and put a holy relic. <laughs> this is what Melvin Bragg said. Might put a holy relic on the stomach of the pregnant woman and hope for the best. Whereas the the Muslim uh, scientists and doctors, they had analyzed this closely and uh, written quite uh, exact uh, textbooks about what what happens and what you can expect. So in a way, the, Arab, the Arabic world, it, it was more advanced scientifically. But... Um, 
so yeah, so all of this was coming into Europe. So Europe was really developing bit by bit, uh, like the universities, um, uh, increase understanding of law and how to govern um, uh, a city, for example. Right. So I think I can move on to the next period. Where am I now? Thomas Aquinas. So the next major kind of figure after um, after St. Thomas Aquinas, who harmonized the pagans with the Christians, was the last great medieval poet called Dante Alighieri. Um, and he was from Florence. Um, and speaking again of the vernacular languages, Dante Alighieri he, in his famous book called The Divine Comedy, which is kind of like a survey of all classical writers, even mediev medieval writers. Um, this book is in three books. It's in the first one is describes hell and then purgatory and then uh, heaven. Um, but Dante Alighieri um, was actually exiled from his beloved Florence. And he therefore traveled around. And when he was writing his um, divine comedy he is said to have taken because there was loads of different vernaculars in italy but he he must have been familiar with quite a few of them because when he was writing he is said to have added in parts that he liked from other vernacular dialects in italy into his book and so it's said that he actually majorly contributed to the, to forming the modern italian language uh, believe it or not yeah because of um his uh he was so learned in poetry and he could really appreciate what was nice in one part of one dialect and he yeah he kind of copied and pasted in a way to uh make to really help contribute to the modern italian language yeah it's crazy but um it's quite true um and so so the next kind of major... So Dante was 1265 to 1321. So now we're kind of getting into the 14th century. But um, the next great figure is a guy called Petrarch. And Petrarch is really a turning point uh, for Europe. Because like, like um, St. Thomas Aquinas had finally resolved the first tension that I mentioned as being a theme in this episode, the... Uh, faith versus reason the next guy uh petrarch he did a lot for the other team for the uh inferiority complex he was kind of like after him it was it was sorted out <laughs> um so likewise he was uh you know a scholar and a, and a monk um and actually it's petrarch who is said to be the first person to ever use the phrase the dark ages so it's kind of like he arrived at a particular vantage point where he felt like he was going to detach himself from the middle ages in a kind of a superior kind of a position and um it's just very uh symbolical that there is a famous anecdote from his life where he is said to have been the first person since the classical times to climb a very high mountain simply for the aesthetic appreciation of the view. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but it's apparently quite true. He was, you know, in those times, it was maybe people just wouldn't want to risk it or they would see no reason to do it. But he did it kind of for aesthetic reasons because he was such a cultured person. Um, and also... Um, 
he he decided to do this based on something he had read that an ancient Greek had done. In a biography, he read on Philip of Macedon, and I'm pretty sure that was the father of Alexander the Great. Um, he was from Macedonia. But uh, he read in the life story of Philip of Macedon that Philip um, decided to climb a, a big mountain near him just for the aesthetic view as well. So here is Petrarch, this this manuscript hunter, he would have went around Europe and went into old monasteries and was looking for books, and he did find quite a few. He's said to have found the, the uh, a copy of the letters of a famous orator from ancient Rome called Cicero. Um, he was the first to discover that, for example. Um, and also, it's it's strange that um, I'll get back to this mountain ascent in a second, but uh, it's. During this period, um, for some reason, I think it was because life was just getting so out of hand in Italy around Rome that the the papacy actually left Rome for 70 years and it went to Avignon in, I think it's the south of France. So that was where near um, where Petrarch was living. So Petrarch would have had access to the big library that the papacy would have brought as well and come into contact with other books. So essentially, I'm pointing out that Petrarch was really um, another really um, renowned preserver uh, and specialist on the classical authors. Um, so I get back to the mountain ascent. Um, so it's very symbolical that this guy Petrarch would basically cut himself off from the Middle Ages and consider himself like the first modern person. So as he was going up this mountain, just for the view, like his, uh, like uh, Philip of Macedon had done, um, in another episode, I mentioned this Roman tradition of when you were facing a dilemma or you wanted advice on something, um, maybe from the gods, kind of. You, the, the Romans went to their um, went to their most famous book called uh, the Aeneid by Virgil, and they, which is a fiction. I explained what it was in another episode. I'm pretty sure they would open it up at random, and whatever paragraph they looked at first, that paragraph was going to have some kind of message f relating to whatever they were considering at that moment. Um, one second, I have this somewhere. I get it here. Oops. So um, when, when um, Petrarch, uh, and this tradition was called Sorte Virgiliane. Um, uh, and actually, I've done it myself. I said this before. I'm not going to go into the story yet because it's not the right occasion, I don't think. But um, yeah, so Petrarch, when he was climbing up this mountain, purely for the view, he um, he had with him a book that he really loved, which was called The Confessions of St. Augustine. And St. Augustine was a very famous, a very influential church father. Um, and this book called Confessions was all about his life before he converted to Christianity. Um, and so as Petrarch was going up the mountain, he... He did, he did a very famous example of this Sorte Virgiliane um, because as he opened up the book of Confessions, this is exactly, apparently, the first thing that his eyes landed on. Um, and it said, And men go forth and, and admire lofty mountains and broad seas and roaring torrents and the ocean and the course of the stars and forget their own selves while doing so.
And it's said that when he read this, he was angry with himself because he said like, yeah, like, what am I doing? Because this period as well is said to be like the birth of the individual. So he, he was saying like he has this quote from this period where he says like the heights that human contemplation can reach are infinitely greater than this mountain. So he he got to the top and then he kind of, yeah, he, he could see the, the seas and the, the Alps and everything all around him. But that opening up the book on that section just um, gave him a real appreciation for what the mind can do as opposed to the body. Um, so anyway, so Petrarch, he came back down and um, Petrarch was actually the, f the second poet laureate in Europe. Uh, there was a guy just so some years before him who was the first poet laureate. And what the poet laureate was is someone who was seen as being a very a, a great poet. And so they were then commissioned to write poetry for certain occasions. So it's a really, <laughs> um, a really privileged position for, uh, for a poet to be in. Well, they're obviously good enough, so they deserve it. Um, but uh, yeah, so the other guy, I'm just mentioning Petrarch because um, he's, he's, more well known than the first guy who became the poet laureate but um so as i was saying around um petrarch's time the 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 pope and rome um the papacy left rome and went to uh, avignon for roughly 70 years and then it came back to uh, italy eventually and when it did come back to italy there was now three people claiming to be the pope so, so there was a bit of controversy here, and this is going to bring me up to um, to the next guy that I want to get onto. But I suppose I should say uh, just before um, I go there that uh, Petrarch, if you're interested, Petrarch was chosen as the poet laureate because of a very famous uh, his book was. Uh, a book that he wrote that was very famous uh, was called Africa. And it was basically about the period in Roman history where Hannibal came over the Alps with the elephants and battled with the Romans. Um, so you can look into that if you're interested. But um, yeah, so so yeah, Petrarch was a renowned poet. Um, and so I just think it's that that story of him rising up the the mountain is very symbolical for him also being the first person to separate himself from the dark ages and he he was a bit of a snob for the middle ages but he had enough contact with the with the ancient authors directly that he didn't uh, almost didn't need to regard the middle age writers because they were all just about catching up and it was their efforts that brought all of those books back out to light and because of their efforts he had access to them all. Uh, so he rather snobbish, snobbishly disregarded them and just went straight back to the ancients. And I should say as well, around this time, um, with these big cathedrals um, being built, um, in Chartres Cathedral in France, there was a guy called Bernard of Chartres, and uh, he was kind of the head of that um, cathedral for a while. And he famously said... Um, it's there was a guy called John of Salisbury from England who quoted Bernard of Chartres as saying, um, Us people are essentially like dwarves 
perched on the shoulders of giants. Um, so if you've ever heard the phrase, if I have seen further, it's because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. This came from originally from the 12th century by a guy called Bernard of uh, Chartres. And it's actually misquoted, misattributed to Isaac Newton. But obviously, he read this somewhere and then he uh, changed it to the way he put it. But um, it's just a perfect example as well as around this time, people were getting their confidence back. Um, enough of the classics had been discovered so that they were feeling more confident. Uh, and I just think that's a very good phrase to go alongside with Petrarch because, um, yeah, the confidence was returning uh, and they were... They were no longer just focused on the ancients, but they were starting to write their own. They were starting to write their own fictions as well. Like, for example, the Arthurian legends. These are, you know, very famous books now. Um, so I'm going to go on now. Thank you, Petrarch, for your um, for your work, <laughs> for your confidence in yourself. Um, and a, a friend of um, of. Petrarch was called Giovanni uh, Boccaccio. He was 1313 to 1375. And he, oh yeah, I should say also, there's just so much to say in this. Please forgive me. <laughs> um, so Petrarch is also um, considered the first humanist. And being a humanist is, is finally, like I'm saying, Thomas Aquinas kind of like sanitized kind of made the the ancients okay to deal with we didn't have to be afraid of them anymore if you're a christian a humanist was the complete celebration of the pagan writers it was no longer there was no longer a suspicion about them it was like look we're christian but we can still celebrate the goodness that was in these writers so petrarch is said to be the first humanist and this humanist um, movement is a, is totally a renaissance. Uh, it's like the quintessence of the renaissance. Um, so just I mentioned Boccaccio. Boccaccio was a friend of, um, of Petrarch. He's another guy worth looking up. He wrote a very famous book called the Decameron. And actually around during the life of Petrarch and Boccaccio, the second wave of the Black Death um came about it didn't last that long it only lasted even less than 10 years but it was devastating oh yeah and i should say i did forget to mention as i said the black the first black death came during the gothic wars with the byzantines and the goths and it lasted like 200 years and that when it finally died out it died out just three years after charlemagne was born so that added stability to charlemagne's uh, period as well forgot to say that but anyway as I said before, I'm I'm not doing a like a cut and edit version of this episode. I'm I just press record and then I press stop when I'm finished. <laughs> it's so it's totally spontaneous and um, live essentially. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so yeah, so uh, Boccaccio is worth mentioning because yeah, he wrote this uh, famous book uh, set during the Black Death where it's basically about um, some people leave the city where they're living because, you know, there's a concentration of people. So you're more likely to get the plague, get to get the virus there. So they go out to the countryside away from people and each person in the group tells a different story uh, each day. Um, and this book was very influential on the 
the first great kind of poet and writer of uh, England, which is uh, Henry Chaucer. So, yeah, those stories of those stories of of Boccaccio were a major influence on Henry. It is Henry, isn't it? Chaucer. Um, Chaucer's um, books book called the canterbury tales so yeah anyway um so now we are up like let's say mm, boccaccio died 1375 and now the next major figure and arguably he is he is kind of one of the core people of the italian renaissance because now we're kind of into the Italian Renaissance in Florence. Um, the last few guys I've mentioned were from Italy, but now we're in Florence, and the Florence is where the Italian Renaissance really uh, took off. So this guy was born just a few years before Boccaccio died. Um, he's called Niccolo de Nicolai. Uh, he was born 1364, and he died in 1437. Niccolo was from quite a wealthy family. family. <laughs> Mm. Niccolò do Nicolai famolo family. Um yeah, he was from quite a wealthy family and when his father passed away, he divided up the inheritance which was quite substantial to I think it was the total of five kids, five boys I think it was. And the other four took their money and they invested it and they you know went on and they used it um to in, to enhance their own um earnings, but Niccolò was a bit different. Niccolò from a young age, was really into books and reading and manuscripts. So he didn't invest his money in developing some new business or something like that. But now to put this in perspective, in in this time, this is late late 14th century, your average bishop in their cathedral um, would have had about 60 manuscripts, would have had about 60 books. But Niccolò de Nicolai, in his lifetime, he gathered 800. So that was like the biggest library in the world, essentially, that this guy had in Florence. Um, and and he was friends with another guy um, who was working for the Vatican, who was also a major book lover. Um, this guy was called Poggio Bracciolini. And um, he was just, he was born a few years after Nicolai. Um and this guy, Poggio, was working for the Vatican, but he also had contacts in um, Florence. And he knew this guy, Niccolò de Nicolai. And to get back to the three popes controversy, this was going to be settled in uh, Switzerland, what we now call Switzerland, near Lake Constance. And Poggio was going to be going with the Vatican members for this council to try and settle who was the actual pope and who was not. But... Um, when he was going, Niccolo would have suggested to him, you know, when you're up there, there's lots of monasteries up around there from, you know, early Middle Ages and stuff like that. You know, you should go in there and uh, have a look and see what you can find. And um, and so, sure enough, when Poggio was up there, he went into a monastery called St. Gaul and he found some books that had not been seen by human eyes for quite some centuries. <laughs> and... Uh, one of them was a book that was rumored to be in existence. Um, it was by one of the greatest orators of the Roman period, and he was called Quintilian. And sure enough, um, to Poggio's amazement, in that monastery, he found 
the works of Quintilian, which no one had seen for centuries. And this was very, um, this was, uh, you know, apart from hearing such great tales about this writer, it was, again, another one of those seed books that really grew into something when it, when it, uh, when people read it, because places like Florence and Venice, they were like recently established, um, republics, um, and a republic is all about, it's kind of like a de- democracy. So it's all about public debate. And so Quintilian is all about the art of rhetoric and the art of communication. So these kind of fines were just major fines for improving um, civic uh, life, uh, the art of debate and the art of discussion. Um, so that was a major find by uh, Poggio. And he also found the book, just to round this all off, he found the book that I was originally going to do an episode on in the last episode. Uh, I won't say what it is, but <laughs> I'll say it in the next one. But um, he found the book um, that that um, brought me onto this topic. Um, and it, it said that this guy Poggio was such a good hunter of manuscripts that by the time he died, he had found so much of the missing manuscripts that by the time he died, we already had almost all of the ancient um, manuscripts that we now have today. So this guy Poggio kind of really found the last missing ones. After him, there was some more discovered, but he he himself was renowned as a discoverer of uh, these things. So... um, so there you are. I, I can kind of start rounding this off now. But so that was it. That, I hope I kind of um, give a give it a, a kind of a, an impression of those themes and how they developed from the the fate of Christianity and the troublesome kind of uh, <laughs> brilliance of the Greeks with their human reason and how it was eventually harmonized by someone like Thomas Aquinas and then how someone like Petrarch finally gave. Uh, European Europeans back that self confidence, um, yeah, and then I rounded it off hopefully with um, the uh, rediscovery of the book that I was going to do that episode on, and just as two more examples of this continuing confidence of of uh, Europeans, I can mention. Um, well, actually, there's another one I thought of as well. For example, the Christian morality was in even in early Renaissance times, it was based on kind of like praise of poverty. Like in the Bible, it says about like, give your wealth away. It's it's easier for a, um, a rich, what is it? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. So poverty was kind of um, praised. Um, and it was because of that that you had monasteries in the first place, monks giving up all their possessions and going and just reading the Bible. Um, so this was kind of Christian Christian morality. But in the Renaissance, when humanism was 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 engaging and celebrating with what was going on in uh, ancient times, um, they used the Roman and Greek writers as a model for their own cities. And in it, they could see how... For example, there was a book discovered in the Renaissance times called the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. And in it, it says, um, the great man, meaning like a wealthy man, the great man is an artist 
in his expenditure, meaning he's an artist with the way he invests his money in public good. So this is why you had lots of like plazas developed in Italy. It was finally, they were feeling finally okay to have money. They didn't have to feel so guilty about it. So they would celebrate it in um, by by doing the public a good, by, by building all of these uh, beautiful plazas and uh, buildings. Um, and that was because of, once again, another kind of seed book on economics or, or on ethics, sorry, from the ancient world. So we can kind of thank, uh, you know, it's like this, yeah, as I'm saying, all of these books were like seeds and um, they changed the Christian morality on on expenditure, essentially. And then um, to just go back to the other two examples that I was going to talk about, for example, another book of uh, Aristotle's was on theatre and it's called The Poetics. And all through the Middle Ages or whenever it was discovered, maybe it was only discovered from the 12th century onwards, um, I mean, people, it's a, it's a, people valued it. And, but the point is, it was apparently misread up until roughly the time of Shakespeare because the, this book, which is all about theatre, apparently was written by Aristotle as a description of what was going on in his day and not as a prescription of what you should do. So by the time of Shakespeare, for example, in Aristotle's um, Poetics, which is all about theatre, he was saying that there was no subplots in the ancient Greek theatre, but yet Shakespeare was putting in subplots and he was making them work. So the critics of Shakespeare were saying, oh my God, you're putting in subplots? Haven't you read Aristotle's... um, haven't you read Aristotle's uh, book on, on theatre? So this appeal to Aristotelian um, authority was was challenged by some genius like, um, like uh, Shakespeare, because Shakespeare was confident. <laughs> um, and um, so how, how can I um, round this one up? Um, yeah, so, so it's just another example of uh, of the confidence returning and challenging the author, the the ancients, not just obedient, obediently submitting to their authority, authority, but actually, in a way, doing exactly what, as I said at the start of this episode, Basil of Caesarea said to do with the author, with the ancient authors. Sure, you can read them, but you don't have to swallow them whole. You don't have to take the whole flower. You can just take the good bits. That's like what Shakespeare did. He didn't say, like everyone else, was just following obediently how um, how Aristotle was describing plays were in his day. Everyone else thought that's how it should be. But Shakespeare, for example, had the confidence to challenge that. Um, and so all of these little events were um yeah they were just confidence returning to 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 europe and then the final example that coincidentally in one of the books i was reading for this episode it's said to be the final death blow of um aristotelian authority any appeal to aristotelian authority because it was by galileo um the italian scientist and in some book by Aristotle, it says that the nerves stem from the heart, but Aristotle had done his own um, 
observation and own kind of dissection of the human body, kind of like the Arabs had been doing, the Muslim world had been doing. Um, and he made, a, he made a joke in one of his writings that like, um, he, he basically mocked um, how Aristotle was saying that this, these nerves originate in the heart, but actually they originate from the brain. Um, so that's just said to be the, the final death blow of, uh, of uh, Aristotle's authority. Uh, and it was in 1632, apparently, when Galileo wrote that. But um, so overcoming the inferiority complex to these ancients, like it's important, but that's not to say that they are to be disregarded because someone like Galileo and someone like Shakespeare, sure, they outdid the ancients, but it's not to say that we can disregard the ancients. Like there's maybe some things in them that are wrong, but like Shakespeare or like Galileo, um, if they had seen further, it's only because they had been standing on the shoulders of those giants, as Isaac Newton would say later, as Isaac Newton himself got that phrase from a 12th century guy. Um, so, so yeah, um, that's, yeah, that, that's just it. Any, anyone who has really achieved something in kind of like, you know, writing or, you know, like Shakespeare or even scientifically, they did engage with these, uh, with the excellence that was uh, achieved in the ancient world. And yeah, it's still not to be disregarded. There's still a lot of good in it. And within my own podcast, I, I am, I'm, I plan on, uh, yeah, diving into those authors and uh, bringing it up to the surface here <laughs> in a podcast. Um, so I think I can more or less leave it there. I don't know how long I've gone on for. Got a little bit shaky there at the end. Maybe I'm getting hungry or something, but, um, yeah, um, so I suppose I haven't really said it that much, but if you are liking these podcasts, I really love doing the research. It's stuff I'm obviously interested in. And then when I actually speak about it, as I said in one of my early podcasts, it's it's kind of like proving to myself that I have understood what I've been reading about. Because over the years, I read books and yeah, they're great at the time. But then after it, I'm kind of like, hmm, I kind of... Uh, I kind of, if you just read it once, it might not stick as well as if you read it twice or even if you speak about it to someone. So for me, this is why mm, the podcast is is it's nice for me to actually do because it kind of puts me to the test on the subject. And that's quite stimulating, actually. And it's actually a good way mm, of really engaging with this stuff uh, to try and explain it. But um, so, yeah. And then if anyone is enjoying it also, um, I would love kind of like uh, any comments or any feedback. That would be great. But also, if you did like it, it would be such a big help to me if you could like share it on your social media or t even just tell people about it. Um, just because right now I'm in this, I'm still in this early stages of figuring out how to get this stuff out there. So, um, and if you really did like this uh, episode or any other episode, <laughs> it would also be ideal. It'd be great for me if, yeah, if you could afford it, if you're in some good job, uh, stable job and, you know, and the price of a coffee or a, or a drink once a month to support uh, this, um, if you could afford that like once a month. That would be, first of all, like 
amazing for me that someone would value this enough to actually su support it uh, financially. Uh, so that would be really amazing for me. Uh, plus, I'm just doing this whole thing with my phone. I don't have a microphone. I'm, I'm kind of like waiting to see if this catches on, if people are going to like it before I actually invest some, some more money in it, you know. But um, yeah, so if you're enjoying it, if you could share it or give any feedback or even if you would go on to my Patreon, which is aurelotium on Patreon. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, yeah, that would be really amazing also. Like I should say, I studied art in college. Uh, I'm currently working on other kind of uh, writing-based projects. Um, and yeah, if I could make, if this podcast could be a source of income, it would really help uh, the podcast thing that I want to do and any other writing projects that I want to do. Um, oh, yes, I should say that just it's a pity now I forgot to say that. But this guy, Niccolo de Nicolai, um, who was essentially um, it, it said that anyone who came to Florence in that time, their trip to Florence was not complete unless they had went to the house of Niccolo de Nicolai, just because of all the books he had and because he himself was apparently so very impressive because he was so knowledgeable. But what I want to bring up here is he was, his patron was Cosimo de Medici, um, and Cosimo de' Medici was into the arts, into the into the a a pagan writers and all this kind of stuff. So really, um, as I'm saying, this guy Niccolo de Nicolai, like he was a massive wealth of information in the Renaissance. And that's only possible because, first of all, he came from money. So he was able to devote his life to all this kind of stuff. And then later he got even more patronage. Um but he did a lot of good for us um, getting this stuff out there. Uh, and there was, even in that time, in the Renaissance, there was public lectures. And I've just been thinking about this idea of public lectures as well. It's, I mean, you don't have that now. Um, I mean, podcasts kind of are, but even, I w I've even been thinking, could I go do an episode here on the, in like a central area here in the city of, <laughs> of Antwerp? <laughs> could be fun. Um, because, you know, not everyone's going to find something on the internet, you know, but if I just go there, I'm going to meet a lot of people. But anyway, this is all just um, ideas. But anyway, so yeah, this is just a, on the topic of, uh, of uh, basically every, nearly every single person that I mentioned in this episode they all had patrons. Um, they were all only able to do what they were doing, which was developing Europe <laughs> because of um, because they had patrons, which allowed them the time to do it. So, uh, yeah, patronage is uh, very important for the arts. And without it, it's it's quite stifled and quite held up. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I haven't even looked at the time yet. Don't know how long this one was. There was an, uh, a massive amount really to say in it. Uh, so yeah, I hope it was somewhat of an overview, an understandable overview of that whole period. Um, yeah, and I'll just briefly say I did consult a few books for this episode. Um, I mentioned the main two. If you're interested, you could check it out. One was called Scribes and Scholars. Um, 
with the subtitle A Guide to the Transmission of Greek and Latin Literature by L.D. Reynolds and N.G. Wilson. And then the other one was called The Bookseller of Florence. That was a really nice one as well by a guy called Ross King. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in this period that I've been talking about and how all these books were um, rediscovered and used, those are two excellent books to uh, have a look at. So, okay, um, I'm going to leave it there. Um, talk to you next time. And thanks for listening. And please share. <laughs> Ciao.